Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for this message. I'm grateful for the book of Exodus, for Moses, the Israelites, the Egyptians, all of those whose lives played such a big part in our life today. I'm grateful for the suffering they went through, for the blessings they experienced, for the confusion in their life, because it's been a blessing to me. And it helps me through those similar times. Thank you for sharing that with us in your word, for preserving it for these many thousands of years for us to have today. Let us not take your word for granted. Let us be in awe of what you've done in recording your words and deeds for us. Let us be faithful to it and let it be a blessing to us in our life. Thank you that we can gather together as your church because of what Christ has done for us. Amen. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, that turned my life into one long night seven times over. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things, even were I condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. God is dead. The God of love, of gentleness and consolation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had vanished forever into the smoke of the human holocaust demanded by the supreme race. And on the most horrible day, even among all those other bad days, when I as a child witnessed the hanging, yes, the hanging of another child who had the face of a sad angel, I heard someone from behind groan, for God's sake, where is God? And from within me, I heard a voice answer, where is he? This is where, hanging here from these gallows, and on Rosh Hashanah, when thousands of Jewish slaves cried out in unison, blessed be the Almighty, not so long ago, I too would have knelt down, and with such worship, such awe, such love. But this day, I do not kneel. I stand. A human creature, humiliated and offended in ways that are inconceivable to the mind or the heart. I stand, defying the blind and deaf God. I no longer plead for anything. On the contrary, I felt very strong. I was the accuser and God was the accused. I was nothing but ashes now, 
But I felt myself to be stronger than this almighty God to whom my life had been bound for so long. In the midst of these men assembled for prayer, I felt like an observer, a stranger. Well, these are the words of Eli Wiesel, chronicling his time at Auschwitz during the Holocaust. It was a time where he saw his entire family killed before him, and he survived it. And these were his thoughts as he looked back on those days. The circumstances of Eli Wiesel's life were horrendous. And his interpretation of those circumstances was that God had rejected him. So as far as he was concerned, God was dead. Corrie Tinboom and her sister Betsy also went through the concentration camps. Corrie saw her family killed, including her sister. But she had this to say. Life in the camp took place on two separate levels. One, the observable external life grew every day more horrible. The other life, the life we lived with God, grew daily better. Truth upon truth, glory upon glory. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Corey and Eli both went through the humiliation and the torture of the camp. And where Eli saw abandonment, Corey saw love. Well, life is a series of circumstances. That's what our life is, is one circumstance after the other. And we need to learn to interpret those circumstances according to Scripture. Not just to allow ourselves to interpret Scripture according to our circumstances. Today, we want to look at Moses and see how he interpreted his circumstances or learned to interpret his circumstances based on the Word of God. It would be absurd to compare our circumstances to those at the Holocaust. The intensity of the circumstance is not as important, though, as the interpretation. Right? There's nothing probably that any of us will go through that will compare to what they went through. But that doesn't make the fact that we have circumstances and the way that we interpret those circumstances any less real to us. Again, it's not the intensity of the circumstance that is as important as the way we interpret the circumstance. Being a Christian also does not privilege us to better circumstances than non-Christians. That's a really important thing, especially for us in America, to understand that the, the health and wealth prosperity gospel is a lie completely. The sooner we come to grips with the fact that that being a Christian is not about having a better life externally or physically, the sooner we'll be able to understand Scripture at a better level. There's no differentiation for the Christian and the non-Christian at the physical level of life. Those things that come to us or those things that happen to us in our body, they're the same. Some Christians have wealth and prosperity and good relationships, and some Christians have disease and poverty and struggle. 
But if they're truly Christians, they're equally sinners. There is no difference in degree of their sinfulness, and they're equally forgiven for those sins in the same degree. And so we can't let the circumstances of our life interpret the Scripture, and we can't impose on God that he should do certain things for us because of the way we live. God does not differentiate Christians and non-Christians in the external things that happen. All the differentiation is internal. It's a spiritual thing. Today we're going to look at how we interpret whatever circumstances we have. Will we let them harden us or will we let them, will we let them soften us? Will they make us resentful or will they make us grateful? Will we go the way of Eli or the way of Corey? Today in our survey of Exodus, you could turn to Exodus 3 to get ready, but in our survey of Exodus, we're going to look at three principles for properly interpreting our circumstances. Now, the circumstances of Exodus are apparently very important. If you, if you stand back and look at Scripture, if we look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, really, I guess, from chapter 4 to 11, we cover several thousands of years. And so God's moving really quickly through history in those chapters. But then from chapter 12 through chapter 50, we only cover about 250 years. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. So God slows down and gives us, gives us much more detail of what's going on because what's happening during that time is very important for us to understand. And then we get to Exodus, and the entire book of Exodus only covers about a year, the whole book. And so the things that are happening here must be very important. Then when we get to, to Numbers, Numbers covers about 40 years. So you can kind of see by the, by the pace that God gives us in Scripture what he's trying to emphasize. And so these circumstances, these events of Exodus are, are very important for us to understand. Well, the three principles for properly interpreting our, our circumstances are this. The incomprehensible God is behind our circumstances. That's principle number one. Principle number two is that the faithfulness of God is proved by our circumstances. And principle number three is that our knowledge of the incomprehensible and faithful God is brought to life by our circumstances. In other words, our knowledge, that objective understanding, we have Scripture, and in Scripture it tells us stuff about God. So our knowledge of these objective truths uh, is brought to life. It becomes subjectively real. That, that external knowledge becomes something that's real in me. And the way that happens is through our circumstances. I mean, just think about it for a minute. I, I can know the right way to do things. I can know that. But can I, can I force myself to do it that way? Are we, are we actually that disciplined? I, I wouldn't say that we're not, but I would say that I'm not. I can't, I can't just will myself to start living the right way. I will it all the time, but it doesn't happen. But what does happen is God brings circumstances into our life, sometimes traumatic circumstances. And those are powerful enough to move us. Those are powerful enough to take 
truth, objective truth, and make it something real in our life. Well, we'll know we're on the right track when we're going through life and when our circumstances, regardless of what they are, drive us to worship. That's our measure. That's how we'll know that we're beginning to to think about life in the right way and interpret our circumstances in the right way. When, When whatever the circumstance it is, it causes us to worship. I'm thinking of Corey Tin Boom. There's another story that she relays in her experience. Corey was in her 50s and her sister as well. And uh, she had what she called their Friday medical inspection. And so for the Friday medical inspection, they stripped the prisoners down. They lined up and they waited, as she said, for the, for the young Nazi soldiers to leer at them and perform their faux medical inspection. They would look in their mouth and look at their fingers, and that was the medical inspection that they had to get undressed for. But she said one day as she was, as she was in that line, and it was cold, and they were forcing her to go through that, and her sister was in front of her, that the scripture came to her mind that they had stripped Jesus and hung him on the cross, and that he withstood that public humiliation for us. And she said she'd never thought of it before because in all of the, the artist renderings, Jesus was, you know, had some amount of clothing, but that was, she understood at that point, just out of respect for him. And as it dawned on her, she got her sister's attention in front of her, and she said, Betsy, they stripped him naked for us. And her sister's reaction was this, oh, and I haven't thanked him for that. That's the kind of reaction to our circumstances that we're looking for, something that drives us where our humiliation is put aside, where our discomfort is put aside, and our circumstances drive us to think of him and cause us to worship. Well, let's look now at uh, at Exodus 3. We'll begin with our first principle that the, the incomprehensible God is behind our circumstances. This is going to be the scene of the not burning bush, right? I, I don't know if you noticed it, but on Mark's slides last week, it's a very dramatic looking slide, the reds and the yellows, but it was a, it was a picture of the burning bush, or the not burning bush, right? These huge flames coming out, which I appreciated because I've always visualized it as this kind of a little fire inside a bush, but here the, the flame was huge, but the bush was not burning, right? And this is, Moses, of course, has been out in the desert for 40 years, leading these sheep around the desert, and he stumbles across this not-burning bush. And, of course, it's God who's come down to tell him he is going to go to Egypt and lead the people out. And then he'll spend the rest of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 trying to get out of that job. (laughs) But we're we're in the middle of that conversation here in chapter 3. Look at verse 13. It says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Well, God is the I am who I am. That's that's a confusing name. It references God as the incomprehensible God. And it's important to get because actually this this point is the most basic Christian thought. 
As Christians, this is something that, that should be under everything that we read in Scripture as we understand how man relates to God. This should, this should actually be in the forefront of our mind, not way back in the back. That God is the incomprehensible God. What makes him the incomprehensible God? Well, first of all, he's, he is independent. God is not dependent on anything or anyone outside of himself. Right? He is life. It's not just that God is alive. It's not just that he has life. God is life. God does not need air. He does not need food. He is complete, independent, without creation. God is just fine. He is perfectly self-sufficient and perfectly blessed without creation, before creation was here. We, of course, are dependent. We need food, air, water, we need rest, we need protection, we need God to not quit thinking about us, right? We need to be sustained. God is also eternal. Now, when we say eternal, we don't mean that he has been here a long, long time, right? By eternal, we mean timeless. And frankly, it's a concept that we just cannot comprehend because our life is, is completely about time. Everything in our life just standing here, we have been moving through time. Some of you are very conscious of how much time we've been here already, right? And you're, and you're wondering, how much more time are we going to be here, right? But, but our lives are inextricably bound with time. For some of us, we feel like, wow, time is moving faster, right? It's, it's speeding up. We're running out of time. For others, it just won't go fast enough. But time is a big part of our life. But time is no part of God's life. God is eternal, timeless. He interacts with us at different points of the time that we go through, but he himself is outside of time. God is immutable, right? He has never been, nor will he ever be, anything other than what he is right now. He's immutable. God does not change. And again, we are all about change. We, we are different now than we were when the song for service started. Some of you may have learned something. I may have said something you hadn't thought about in a way, and now you know something you didn't know then. Some of you might feel like you're not going to learn anything, right? You're, I'm dumbing you down or something here. But, but we're changing. We're changing mentally. We're changing physically, moment by moment. But God is immutable. He doesn't change. There is no growth. There is no decay. He's also omnipresent. He is spirit. Now, he's not a spirit in the same way I'm a spirit. Right? I, we're a spirit, but our spirit is contained somehow. It's bound. It's, it's not unlimited. Angels are spirits, but angels aren't omnipresent. They are contained. But God is a spirit, and with God, there is no containment. Space means nothing. God is everywhere. Right? He's right here with me, and he's, he's right there with you, and he's with our brothers and sisters in Australia. Right? If we were to go outer space, he would be with us there. God is is omnipresent. God is also three and one. He's Father, Son, and Spirit, and He is one God. He's not three any more than He is one, and He's not one any more than He is three. He is equally three and one. Absolutely the same. One does not dominate the other. We, we say he is e that His threeness and His oneness are equally ultimate. That's incomprehensible. And God is absolute. 
There's no potential in God. No potential because he is, because he is fully actualized in everything that he, he is. Right? His, his perfections are, or his, he is infinitely perfect. His love is perfect. His justice is perfect. His mercy is perfect. Everything about him is perfected. With us, we're only potentiality. Right? We could be smarter. We could be stronger. We could be more loving. We could be more kind. We, we have all this room for growth. None of us have become fully grown, fully actualized. But God is absolute. Well, these are things that are incomprehensible, but these are all things that are bound up in his name, I am who I am. It, he, he just is who he is. We have no reference point here to explain him, so the only way he could explain who he is is by himself. Now, he did provide this fire in the bush to help us understand that. A fire, as we know it, needs fuel. It needs gasoline, or it needs propane, or it needs wood, or it needs something to keep it burning. Fire consumes. It must be supplied. But in this case, we have the fire inside a desert bush, a bush that is just aching to be burned up, right, because it's dry and crisp. But here the fire is in the bush, and it's burning, and the bush is not consumed, and the fire is not being fed fuel. The fire, of course, representing God, the self-generating one, the one that has life in itself. And it's come in contact with this bush without burning it, just as God has, has come in contact with us without consuming us. And so he's given Moses a little bit of, a, of an illustration here to help him take in what it means that he is the I am who I am. His incomprehensibility while it is great and while it is mind-boggling, should also be a comfort for us. Because it's the incomprehensible God that is behind the circumstances of our life. So, so why wouldn't the circumstances of our life be equally incomprehensible? Just thinking of our text, why would God promise land to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and never give it to them? Right? Have you thought about those kinds of things? I think about them a lot. He gave Abraham this promise, you leave your home and I'm going to give you this land. And Abraham went, and for I think roughly 175 years, he lived and never got the land. All right? He made the, passed the promise down to Isaac and to Jacob, both of whom never got the land. In fact, Jacob even died in Egypt. All right? And why would he sell Joseph into slavery just to turn around and make Joseph the head of state? I do that. Or, or why would he arrange it so that the Israelites would go into slavery for 400 years when he knew that he was just going to deliver them 400 years later? These circumstances are they're at least incomprehensible at the time when we're going through them. Why would he do it that way? Well, he's the incomprehensible God. We should anticipate that our circumstances are going to be incomprehensible as well. Are there some incomprehensible circumstances in your life? You know, maybe, maybe business was good before COVID hit and then it was hurt bad or maybe it went away. Right? Maybe as a young person you had great plans and dreams but all of a sudden 20 years went by and your life was much less than what you had thought it would be. Maybe you made that 
one mistake that hurt you and hurt a lot of people and changed the course of your life forever? Maybe things just seem to be going really well for no apparent reason, for no fault of your own. Are there circumstances in your life that are just incomprehensible? They have you scratching your head. Why, Why would God do it this way? Well, the incomprehensibility of our circumstances is assurance that God is behind them. So this is our first principle. The incomprehensible God is behind our circumstances. Now, God said something else to Moses at the bush that leads us to our second point, our second principle, that the faithfulness of God is proven by our circumstances. The faithfulness of God is proven by our circumstances. Look at verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all the generations. Now, he told Moses that his name was Yahweh, and your Bible's going to say the Lord. I don't think any translations say Yahweh, but, but we understand that when you see the Lord in those lowercase caps, like you see, that that is in place of the word Yahweh. And it, and it came along because the, I can't remember when it happened, but the Jews got superstitious about taking God's name in vain, and so they replaced, they replaced Yahweh in the scriptures with Adonai, and so they, wouldn't, they didn't even want to say his name or print his name, and so they replaced it. But we understand that it means that this is Yahweh. And when God shared his name with with Moses as Yahweh, he was doing something specific. He was revealing something specific about himself. To come across as Yahweh, he's coming across as the covenant God, the covenant-keeping God. He wasn't Yahweh to anybody else. He was Yahweh only to the Israelites because he was going to covenant with the Israelites. And so to hear the word Yahweh, to, to, to refer to him as Yahweh meant we are referring to the God who's in covenant with us, who, who we are in covenant with. And so when you see the Lord in the Old Testament, you could put the covenant-keeping God there. So much about Exodus, much of Exodus is about this point. In fact, in fact the entire part of the story where we leave Egypt all the way through Mount Sinai, is about God being known as Yahweh. He introduced himself to Moses that way. He said said it in chapter 3 or chapter 6 that before I had not revealed myself as Yahweh, before I had revealed myself as God Almighty, now I am revealing myself as Yahweh. And if you recall in in chapter 5, Moses goes to Pharaoh. He says to Pharaoh, hey, let our people... We're going to go worship for three days, and then we'll come back. And Pharaoh says, I don't know who Yahweh is. And so he, he makes their work twice as hard, and uh, so Pharaoh's upset with Moses. The Israelites are upset with Moses because now they're working harder than ever. And so Moses comes back to God in chapter 6, and God reiterates to Moses, I am Yahweh. I am the covenant-keeping God. I will be faithful to my people. And then we see chapter 7 through 11, the plagues. 
And throughout the plagues and all the way into chapter 14 where, where we have the Red Sea and God kills the Egyptian army and the Pharaoh, God says over 20 times in those chapters that I'm doing this, I'm sending this plague, I'm doing this thing so that they will know that I am Yahweh, so that they will know that I am the covenant-keeping God. Sometimes he did it so that the Egyptians would know it. Sometimes he did it so that Pharaoh would know it. Sometimes he did it so that Israel would know it, but he did it. The things that are happening in Exodus, those great plagues that are happening, the Red Sea event, they're happening for one event, not to get the people of Israel out of bondage. I mean, that's going to happen. But they're happening, God says, so that they will know I am Yahweh. It's a very important part of the book, but we want to look at it from Moses' perspective because the Egyptians and Pharaoh, they're clearly not under God's protection. And, and really, if you remember, every one of the Israelite adults except for two of them are not going to get to the promised land. The book of Hebrews is going to describe them as an apostate people. It's really Moses. Moses is the one adult who's really getting this message from God. And so we want to put ourselves in Moses' shoes as we look at the events of the Exodus. Well, they go through those great victories. They have the plagues. The people walk out of Egypt. They walk through the Red Sea. They see their enemies destroyed behind them. And then we get to Exodus 32. Turn to Exodus 32, please. Read in verse 7. This is, this is right after the people have made the golden calf, and Moses is up on the mountain with the Lord. Verse 7, And Yahweh said to Moses, Go down for your people, for your people, <laughs> whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Well, this golden calf was a huge violation of God's commands, right? Have no other God before me. Have no graven image, those sorts of things. The people, they're committing idolatry. They, they have just, just weeks since they have left Egypt. And they have said, these are your gods. This, this calf that we just brought up out of the fire, right? This is your God. Well, it's a, it's a flagrant violation. In fact, it's worse than the idolatry of the Egyptians, right? It's worse, for one, because the people knew better. God had told them what to do. He's already delivered the Ten Commandments to them. It's been very clear. His, his voice came out of heaven, Right? God's voice spoke directly to the people. Of course, they couldn't handle that. They had Moses, wait, stop, Moses, let God talk to you. But, but God has told them the conditions of the covenant. They know better. 
and yet they have gone the way of the Egyptians. And so God has threatened to annihilate them. And we can see in his very threat that this sin is worse than the sin of the Egyptians. Because what did he do to Egypt? Well, he, he, he killed Pharaoh. He killed their army. He decimated them during the plagues. He had the people of Israel walk out with their valuables. But Egypt still stands. Right? It's broken. It's hurting. But Egypt is there today. Egypt is not gone. He didn't annihilate Egypt. He didn't intend to annihilate Egypt. But here, he says, stand back, Moses, because I am going to annihilate Israel. Their their just reward was worse than the Egyptians. For all of the gods that the Egyptians had, this act of idolatry was worse. Of course, Moses interceded. And he goes down and he calls for the people to declare their allegiance to Yahweh. Do you remember what happened? They didn't. They refused to declare their allegiance. Only some of the Levites did. And so then Moses told the Levites to take their swords and go through the crowd and kill the Israelites. And they went through and they killed about 3,000 of them. And that wasn't enough, and so God sent a plague in and killed thousands more. And then God says he's not even going to accompany the people to the promised land. Well, imagine Moses. Moses has been ripped out of his life. He's gone through all of these great victories. Right? He's seen what God can do, and yet the people are reacting this way. Imagine the despair that Moses must be. He's, God has just said he's going to get rid of the Israelites. And now he's killed them in front of him. And, and Moses himself has had to call for them. Imagine the despair. Well, our principle here is that our circumstances prove the faithfulness of God, but so far it doesn't look like it's happening that way. Right? God has been ready to get rid of them. Well, let's move to Exodus 33 now. Flip over to Exodus 33. This is all happening around Mount Sinai. It's all happening around the golden calf incident. In Exodus 33, beginning in verse 3, God says to Moses, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. He's, he's still not pleased, right? He's, he's not over this yet. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For Yahweh had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may, not, uh, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought Yahweh would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. Each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and Yahweh would speak with Moses. 
When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship at his tent door. Thus Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Did you catch those words, used to? That's what used to happen. Right? There was a time when Moses put this tent out there, and then when, when people saw Moses going out, they would all come out of their tent, and they would stand up because they were about to see something amazing happen. That cloud that was accompanying them, it would come down, and they would see that, that Moses and God are talking in a way face-to-face. But that doesn't happen anymore. Because of this idolatry, it doesn't happen that way anymore. God doesn't come down to meet with the people. But God is not abandoning the people. That's not what's going on. Even though they abandon him, what he's doing in these circumstances is he is showing them who he is as Yahweh. A little more time to go by and we'll see how he's doing this. We get to chapter, later on in chapter 3, and Moses has hit a low point, right? Moses can't go to the tent of meeting anymore. The people are on the outs with God. It's a time of despair for Moses. But all these circumstances, everything from the victories, from chapter 3 at the burning bush, from everything that's happened, has happened for this moment. It's been preparing Moses for what God is about to say to him. Those circumstances have been important for now. He says in verse 33, Moses says, If I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. And he says in verse 18, again, please show me your glory. And then finally, in verse 19, God speaks. God says, I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So Moses has said, show me your ways, show me your glory, and God says, I'll show you my glory. My glory is who I am. Who I am is my name. This is my name. This is what the covenant-keeping God is. This is what my name means. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Moses, that's my name. That's my glory. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That's who I am, Moses. God had orchestrated these circumstances to prove his faithfulness. Here's what's happened. Let's put it in perspective. God is merciful to Israel, right? He's kept them. They deserved to be annihilated, but he has kept them. He is merciful to Israel in spite of this great sin of theirs, right? They have done nothing to deserve his mercy, only his wrath. Now, he was just to the Egyptians. He gave justice to the Egyptians because of their sin, whereas he was merciful to the Israelites in spite of their sin. And just as neither Pharaoh nor the Egyptian army nor the Egyptian gods could keep back God's justice, none of them could keep back his wrath. In the same way, nothing the Israelites could do could keep back his mercy. Try as they may, they could not keep him from being merciful to them. 
look at all of these circumstances, how, how dramatic, how drastic, how costly they are for God to get this point across. It costs thousands of lives. It costs the economy of Egypt. It costs thousands of Israelite lives for this one point so that, so that we would know what it means for God to be the covenant-keeping God. That when he says he will be merciful, he will be merciful. And nothing we will do will keep him from being merciful. It's in the same way that when he says he'll be just, he will be just. But his focus here is on his people and on his mercy. So Moses was not just given a fact. God did not just tell Moses that I am Yahweh. I am the covenant-keeping God. God's faithfulness came alive to Moses in, in the most incomprehensible way. <laughs> right? Had Moses asked God to show him his faithfulness, this is not what Moses would have had in mind. He would have had some other plan in mind. Well, this brings us to our third principle. Our knowledge of the incomprehensible and faithful God is brought to life in us by our circumstances. Our knowledge, the, the objective understanding of truth that we have through Scripture, our knowledge of these objective things, these truths that are out there, our knowledge is brought to life. It's, it's made ours. It's made subjectively ours by our circumstances, the circumstances that God has orchestrated. Well, we're going to fast forward 40 years. Moses has been with these stiff-necked people for 40 years, and they have been stiff-necked for 40 years. All right, we're going, to, we're going to jump out of Exodus momentarily and go to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy, uh, of course, uh, just covers, I believe, um, less than a year's worth of time, the entire book. It's, it's, it's Moses' farewell tour, basically, and he gives, I think, five farewell addresses throughout Deuteronomy. In chapter 32, he's given one of those farewell addresses. Of course, as you remember, Moses is not going into the promised land. They're camped just this side of the river, this side of the Jordan. The promised land is in view. Every single adult, every single person over the age of 20 when they were brought out of Egypt is now dead, except for Joshua and Caleb. They're dead because of their refusal to believe that God could do what he said he would do and what he showed them he could do. And so Moses is getting ready to die. He can't go into the promised land either. And he's, he's sharing his last thoughts with the people. With this generation of people, there's no one over 60 in this generation that, that's going to go in and take the land. He says in verse 1, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim. Well, what is Moses going to proclaim? Right? It's 40 years with the stubborn, complaining people, 40 years of watching them die one by one in the desert, 40 years of, of himself not getting to step foot in the promised land. What is he going to proclaim? 
For I will proclaim the name of Yahweh. He's still on the name of Yahweh. All the way back at Exodus 3 at the, at the bush, I will proclaim the name of Yahweh, the one whose name I asked back then. Ascribe greatness to our God. I will proclaim the name of Yahweh. Ascribe greatness to our God. What's this name? How is he going to describe it? Listen, the rock. That's how Moses sees God, the rock. An unmoving, unchangeable, stable, faithful God. He's a rock. It boils down to that word for Moses after all this time. And he says, I will proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. And think of all the ways that are in Moses' mind right now after 40 years. All of his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Moses learned that the obstacles of life the unbelievable, unbearable circumstances were from God to show his faithfulness to his people. Isn't that a great story? What an amazing life Moses had. What an amazing set of circumstances that we get to learn from, that we get to apply to our own circumstances. Think about Moses' worship. True worship is worship in truth. That's what Moses is worshiping now, the truth of who God is. He understands that history is marching according to God's plan and towards God's purpose. God is always enacting his perfect plan in every circumstance of life. Our circumstances do not contradict God's revelation as Eli Wiesel thought. They confirm it. Well, the natural question is, do we, do I, do you let Scripture interpret our experiences or do we let our experiences interpret Scripture? Are we going the way of Corey? Are we going the way of Eli? We don't want to follow the example of the Israelites. If we were to look back in Exodus 6-9, Back at the very beginning, the Israelites, it said, when Moses was telling them the plan, they wouldn't even listen to him then because they were crushed underneath the circumstances of their slavery. They could not see past what was happening to them. They could not comprehend that this could be God's plan. And even at the victory at the Red Sea, they didn't think about Yahweh. And after spying out the land, they became paralyzed with fear and didn't think that this God who'd brought them here could get them through the giants of the land. They forgot that the incomprehensible God was behind their incomprehensible circumstances. We want to follow the example of Moses. It was difficult for Moses. He didn't understand what was going on either. But when he finally accepted that it is the I am who I am, the incomprehensible God who is behind these circumstances, he was humbled and he could worship God through them. So think about yourself. 
in spite of COVID or in spite of sickness or financial trouble or civil unrest or political upheaval or or whatever it may be, discouragement at, at work or discouragement with someone close to you, whatever the circumstances are, the faithfulness of God will be proved by these circumstances. If you're a Christian, the faithfulness of God will be proved by these circumstances because it is the incomprehensible God who is orchestrating these circumstances. It makes sense that we would not understand what's going on. We don't have to understand. It's the incomprehensible God doing it. We don't have to understand why it's happening. We just have to know that God is in charge of it happening. So because of these things, we can be at peace in our circumstances. We can thank God. We can thank him for giving us the storm. We can praise God as Moses did the rock whose work is perfect. Well, we've looked, uh, we've made our way through Exodus and cheated and skipped into Deuteronomy a little bit. But we can see that a great portion of this book that God has dedicated so much time to these, this short amount of time of history is very important. It's important to show us who God is for his people, right? We know God as Yahweh because we are his people. He is the covenant-keeping God, and we are the covenant people. And we've seen three principles, three principles for interpreting the circumstances of our life according to, to scripture. Those are that the incomprehensible God is behind our circumstances. The faithfulness of God is proved by our circumstances. And our knowledge, our our objective understanding of the truths in scripture is brought to life. It's, It's made subjectively real in our life by our circumstances. God creates the circumstances to bring scripture to life so that our knowledge becomes an actual force in our life. It becomes actualized in our life and it does something to us and for us. 